Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we're going to go into Exodus, find out what is uh, the meaning of this story of Exodus. We uh, are hopefully going to discover this whole message that is is coming to us by way of the story of Moses and the people of Israel. Now, the people of Israel were just this family uh, that came down through Abraham. And we've seen the whole story of of Genesis of uh, Abraham, who was this man of faith. They talk about it in the New, the New Testament, that Abraham was this man of faith. And this is really what makes you an Israelite, is that you are a people of faith. You're not born of flesh alone. That's not enough. That, that you have to be born of spirit and truth. And this is a common theme throughout the entire Bible, but a lot of people today, modern thinking, they think of, well, you're an Israelite if you have the bloodline. But it's very clear in the New Testament when they talk about Abraham that he was this man of spiritual faith, a spiritual, personal spiritual revelation where he he knew God in his heart and in his mind. This double idea of faith, not just in action, but in spirit. And that is extremely important, and that's going to come up when we start going to Exodus uh, chapter 5, because of a letter that we've talked about before, which is the Gimel. And occasionally the Gimel shows up together as a double letter. And, uh, you know, I've started putting together a page on double letters. There's a double Tav, and there's a double Gimel, and there are other letters that occasionally will just suddenly appear as doubles, double Mem, and uh, double Lamad. You know, like the, the word for uh, a dead body has two Lamads in it, and the word for a hole has Two Lamads in it. And so and it's actually the same, begins with the same letter and has these two Lamads in it. And it means dead body and it means hole, as in hole in the ground. And where do you put a dead body? You bury it in a hole in the ground. And so the question is, if they look like identical words, are they talking about the hole or are they talking about the dead body that's in the hole? And, of course, the, the reality is all the words in Hebrew, I say all, I, I haven't come across anywhere where I didn't find this, but all the words in Hebrew have a double meaning. They have an abstract or spiritual meaning, uh, and they also have a physical meaning, like the reins of a horse uh, also has to do with the control of a thing. And this is why... They were given, it also has to do with 
the physical kidney uh, of a person. So you have this uh, kidney given to the Levites uh, when there's a sacrifice. But is it that they only get the kidney out of the sacrifice? They get to have kidney pie and kidney stew and kidney this and kidney that because they're Levites and that's their share? Or is it that they are given the reins of control of the sacrifice? When you give the sacrifice to the Levites, they they now own the sacrifice. It's burnt up to you and it's given to them. And now they can redistribute that sacrifice amongst the people and serve the tents of the congregation, the tabernacle of the congregation. They're not taking all these sheep that they're given and taking them into the tent and they give the dead sheep to the tent, though they give it to the congregation. And it's a really simple little metaphor and they're describing, and, and it goes into all the other words, you know, like to fatten, uh, to honor thy father and thy mother. The word honor, to think of the concept of honoring somebody, that's kind of an abstract idea. It's not like you can put honor in a bucket or in a bag and you say, well, I have this honor for my parents. Well, in truth... The same word for honor is the word for fatten. You're supposed to fatten your parents. You're supposed to prosper your parents. That's what honoring your father and your mother is. I mean, they're going to get old. They're not going to be able to work as long as they have worked when they were raising you up. But you're supposed to honor your parents, take care of your parents, so that your days are long upon the land. And we've explained this. So that your children see you taking care of your parents. And, of course, you're having children because that is the nature of creation, that you're created and now you have the power to create the next generation. You're the generation created by the generation before, and you're supposed to create the next generation. But we're facing in the world today a population collapse. People in Europe, people in America are not producing enough children to create the next generation. And that's that's the data that's been coming in now for years. People like Elon Musk see it and, and warns that we're facing population collapse. This, of course, is why the industries of Europe are inviting so many immigrants into their country. It is not because they love the poor immigrants, although that's this, that's the nice scenario that they give. Oh, we have to care about these people. No, they are replacing those people who are not producing the next generation. And they're, they're replacing them from wherever they can get them. Life was hard in some of these other countries or somewhat hard. Although, you know, I saw lines and lines of immigrants that are, you know, coming to the uh, Mexico border and coming across and they're coming down roads and they're walking, you know, like there's like three, four people across and, you know, it's a pretty wide line. And I'm looking at the line and I notice that the large majority of the people in that line are overweight. (laughs) This is not like what we saw in 
in parts of Africa where the people were emaciated and actually starving and actually having a difficult time. These people well fed. Now, obviously, somewhat of their diet may tend to make them more overweight because of what they eat in their country. But they are not starving people. They are possibly fleeing crime-ridden communities. But, you know, crime-ridden communities are because the community is already broken down. That's why you have crime-ridden communities. And so they're really fleeing to a place where they're going to get more stuff, more economic benefit. But unfortunately, they're often bringing with them the same culture that created all the problems where they are. Uh, the, you know, Venezuela is not having the difficulty that Venezuela is having because of climate change. You know, Venezuela is one of the richest countries in South America. They're having the problem they're having because they, their minds accepted the idea of socialism. It's not working out for them. It never does. When you really go full socialism, you, you're heading towards communism and you're heading towards a totalitarian regime. This, this always takes place. I've added to uh, uh, our page on uh, War on Poverty and uh, LBJ and explaining exactly what uh, was taking place under FDR and the New Deal. The New Deal and FDR is not that new deal. It is, it is the way of Nimrod. It is not the way of Christ. And it leads to destruction. It leads to the people being scattered and divided so that they cannot withstand the criminal elements that take over in a community. The brotherhood of crime that takes over in the community, either through the government or by manipulating the government. These special corporate interests take uh, they can manipulate the government. They can put, uh, uh, you know, uh, lobbyists in place and control the government, bribe the government, and to, to make things happen. And this is because of a general corruption in society. And before Venezuela got to the place where they're at now, they had a way that listened to the speeches about socialism and say, yeah, let's do that. But if they were really Christian people, they would say, no, we can't do that. And they, if they were really a Christian people, they would already have a social welfare system in place through the practice of pure religion. But they, they don't have pure religion. They have an orthodoxy and, a, a, and a doctrines that don't even mention religion. They have religious doctrinal statements that don't include religion. So how, how can you have religious doctrinal statements that don't include religion? <laughs> that's, it's amazing, but that's actually what's happened. Years ago, a lot of people were asking me that we need to have an official doctrinal statement for His Holy Church. Now, these people are coming out of, you know, your Orthodox churches that have these doctrinal statements. 
And so they think, well, we have to have a doctrinal statement like all the other churches. But where's the doctrinal statement of Jesus Christ? Was Jesus Christ instructing the apostles? Apostles, you need to write down a doctrinal statement so that everybody knows what our doctrine is. Well, they did. It's called the Bible. (laughs) And they tell you in the Bible what the doctrinal statements of Jesus Christ are. That's the doctrinal statements of the church appointed by Jesus Christ. It's what he said. That's that's what he taught. That's how we know he taught it because that's what he was saying when he was teaching the people. <laughs> it's pretty simple. But when I, you know, I thought, okay, so what's in a doctrinal statement? You know, I'd read doctrinal statements before. I had a particular uh, church upbringing. And, uh, but now I went and looked out at all the other, you know, Assembly of God, Methodist, Lutheran, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, as many different places as I could to look at people who claimed to be Christian and followers of Christ. What was their doctrinal statements? Well, what I, I was reading numerous ones in, in a row. And, you know, thanks to the internet, I could just look them up. Wasn't using a smartphone in those days, but so I had to look it up on my dial-up connection uh, and to take a look at all the other published doctrinal statements. And all of a sudden, it just dawned on me. I was just suddenly inspired by the fact that uh, these doctrinal statements didn't say what Jesus said; that they weren't quoting Jesus. They, they, they had, a lot of times they'll have references to Bible quotes in them, but most often these are not Bible quotes of Jesus. There'll be a Peter, uh, there'll be Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Corinthians, you know, Paul quotes, but almost never are these doctrinal statements quoting Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Because wouldn't the doctrines of Jesus, the doctrines of the church, aren't they the doctrines of Jesus? Wouldn't they be quoting Jesus? I mean, you would think that that's what they would be doing, but that is not the case of what I was finding in all these doctrines. They were quoting uh Paul and, like I say, Deuteronomy, Ephesians, uh, just one right after another. But they were not quoting Jesus. Why not? Why aren't they quoting Jesus? Uh, why aren't they uh, uh, using what he actually taught? Because we have those words. We have them in the Bible. And it's interesting that many of these doctrinal statements start off with the fact that they want to refer to the Bible as the Word of God or the inerrant Word of God and that it is the, you know, it is God speaking to us through the revelation of the authors who wrote down the Bible, usually in Hebrew or Greek, and then translated. Now, the translators are clearly not always inerrant (laughs) because... The, there's quite a few different translations and they don't always agree. And they don't always use the same original text. And so, 
which text do we use? And of course, there's groups that say, you know, King James only, or or they'll have some special, you know, Geneva Bible or some special Bible that we're all supposed to use. But, uh, and, you know, you can argue those points, but see, this is the problem with looking at the Bible as the inerrant word of God. The people who read it are not inerrant. They do make mistakes. And ultimately, you can't, you're not going to be able to say, well, you know, when you meet your maker, if you, if that's the process, when you die, you go and meet, you know, they say Peter's at the golden, at the gates of heaven. And so you're going to, Peter's going to say, well, let's, let's take a look at what you've done and what you believe and what you do. And, you know, first thing I want to see is your doctrinal statement. <laughs> No, I don't. I'm pretty sure it doesn't work quite that way. But uh, these are the way that a lot of times people want to explain to them. And when you're talking to a little kid, you know that makes sense because you have to relate it to those physical things that the kid knows, so that he understands. And really, the essence of your explanation to small children is in the love that's in your own heart when you're trying to explain it. You know, like uh, the, the old uh, Dick Van Dyke show where the boy asks, where did I come from? And the father's, you know, Dick Van Dyke thinks he has to give the story of the birds and the bees to his son. And actually, he just want to know, was I born in Minneapolis or Indianapolis? You know, <laughs> that's what, he, what he, his question was much simpler than the father realized. And so the whole show was about the, the awkwardness of explaining where you came from. And he just want to know where was I born, what town was it. <laughs> so, so you 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 design your answer according to the ability of that child to receive the answer, and so you you come up with catechisms and Bible stories. And of course, Jesus was doing the same thing to the people of Israel. He was telling them parables, and we know in the Bible there are allegories and there are metaphors, just like I just explained. That the Levites weren't given the kidneys. The Levites were given the uh, reins of control. The power to control the sacrifice given by the people to take care of the people. Now, when we mention the Gimel, this letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, which they actually, you can you can write out the word Gimel with other Hebrew letters. Which they say Gimel is spelled with Gimel, G, <laughs> at the beginning. Uh, Mem, Lamad. That's how you spell Gimel. Actually, some say you spell it Gimel, Yod, Mem, Lamad. And so, Mem is the flow word. Lamad has to do with your hand. And the Yod has to do with the divine spark, which is interesting how sometimes Gimel is written you know, to spell it out, they say it's spelled with a yod between the gimel and the mem, and sometimes it's not. So which way do you spell it? Well, it depends on what you're trying to express. But gimel, this letter gimel, is said to represent the idea of uh, cause and effect. That that's really what the Gimel is about, that it's about cause and effect. But other places, scholars will say that the Gimel means kind and benevolent. 
and others say justified repayment. So justified repayment is what you get. A repayment is what you're paid because of what you did. It's a justified repayment, not a justified payment, but a repayment. And kind and benevolence. What's the antithesis of kind and benevolent? Well, it's cruel would be the opposite of kind. And benevolent, the opposite of benevolent would be covetous. So, if you're kind and benevolent, what's the justified repayment? If you're cruel and covetous, what's the justified, what's the consequences of that? What's the justified repayment? And the reality, and when they talk about wrath of God, and we have an article up to try to explain, wrath of God is the consequences that, that, that come about because of the gimel, because of the cause and effect. What you have done will bring the wrath of God. But what you have done will also bring the blessings of God. And the the reality is that both of them are the consequences built in by God in creation. If you do things a certain way, certain things are going to come about. If you do them another way, other things are going to come about because we live in this cause and effect universe where the consequences are built in to creation itself. And so, one we call the wrath of God and the other one we call the blessings of God. Because we don't like wrath and we do like blessings. <laughs> so therefore, this is good, that is bad. But they're both the consequences. This irrelevant of good and bad. Good and bad is the way in which you look upon it. It's not necessarily have anything to do with the consequences. The consequences are the consequences. So, anyway, the reason I took this little tangent off on the Gimel to understand that if you don't really, if your doctrines are not really the doctrines of Jesus, you're not going to have the consequences of Jesus's, what Jesus did. Jesus came that you might be saved. But if you reject the real Jesus, the real doctrines of Jesus, the real message of Jesus, the real character of Jesus, the real precept upon precept that we see in Jesus, which is also called the Christ, the anointing, the anointing of that perception and understanding of the divine nature of Christ, then there will be consequences. If you reject that, you, there'll be, you can say Jesus all you want. That's that's one aspect. But until you accept the real Jesus into your heart and into your mind, these, these two elements, you're not going to receive the consequences of what Jesus has done for us all, what Jesus is providing by his life here. So anyway, we're going to take a look at that and we're going to look at the double gimbal when we come back so that we can understand Exodus 5. So we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, we were looking at this Gimel, 
this cause and effect letter. The, one of the things about the, the letter, the way it's written, some Hebrew scholars say that it is drawn as a, to look like a man running, like a little stick figure man running. And they even say it's a rich man running after a poor man to give him charity. This is the way they describe the letter. Now, I don't know if originally the letter, you know, the letter looks a lot different ways in many different forms of Hebrew and Aramaic and, and, and the different languages. So, uh, but it's interesting that, you know, all their studies, this is the way they come up with and begin to describe this letter, this letter gimel. The, most of the time when you see a double gimel, two gimels in a row, uh, it's, the second gimel is placed there in a word that normally does not have the gimel. That, two gimels. It has one, but it doesn't have two. Now, there is a word that that naturally has two gimels in it, side by side. And it's the word for roof. You know, Rahab, when she went up on the roof, and they mention it twice, the roof, twice in, in those verses. You can go to, uh, there's a number of different places where we can find... Uh, that word roof with that double gimel in it uh, in Judges 16, 27, Joshua 2, 6, which is, uh, and also in Second Samuel 11. Uh, but we also are going to find it in Exodus 5, 1. And we're going to find it in, in a word that, uh, that the, actually the word for feast, uh, that would normally be chet gimel gimel. But, uh, in the text, we're going to find it with a vav yod, hey gimel gimel. No chet. They replace the chet with a hey, and they add a vav and a yod in it. There's another place where we have a double gimel, but the gimels are not found together. This cause and effect letter are not found together, and that's in gog and megog. Megog, the the two gimels are divided by a vav. There's a vob between the the two gimels. So there's this cause and effect letter that appears together at twice in a word that means roof. And what is a roof? Roof is your protection against the elements, against hail, against rain, against snow, against the wind, against you know, the sun, all those things. Uh, you... If you're trying to survive, you may need protection against. And so a roof is correlated to the idea of a protection, a covering. And of course, way back in the story of the Garden of Eden, that we were supposed to be naked. And we have an article on what that naked really means. And it could mean that they were walking around naked and they didn't have any clothes. And it appears to be telling us that, yeah, then they needed clothes, a fig leaf, to cover their nakedness. Uh, but nakedness, the word naked, also means without authority. Again, words have a physical meaning and they also have an abstract meaning. And so to say that somebody... Because we, we know that later on they they tell that uh, the Levites who are chosen to be these priests who you're going to be giving your sacrifice to and then the... The Levites are supposedly in charge of the redistribution of the wealth of the people. Because 
in society, we may all be created equal, but everything is not equal. Sometimes people are smarter, sometimes people are more physically capable, and sometimes bad things happen to people, and members of your society need help. And in that process of helping, you know, like the rich man's got lots of money, more money than he needs. He's got money that he could give away. And modern society says, yeah, let's tax the rich. Let's force them to give. But that's not in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, no, you have to do it by charity. You have to do it by love. So the rich man has to love the poor man. He has to care about the poor man. But if you... If you desire to take away from the rich man, then that's covetousness. And that, even in the Ten Commandments, you're not supposed to covet. Paul says you're not supposed to covet. Paul says if you're coveting, you have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Certainly, Jesus didn't come coveting. I mean, once uh, one of the apostles lost his coat. He couldn't find his coat. My coat's gone, you know, like somebody stole my coat. And Jesus says, well, here, take mine. Oh, no, he didn't want to take Jesus' coat. He was all upset that somebody else got his coat. But Jesus is saying, no, you know, Jesus was the epitome of the antithesis of covetousness. So if you really believe in Jesus, you won't be covetous either. You won't be saying, tax the rich. Let's force my neighbor to contribute to my welfare. A Christian wouldn't do that. Christ wouldn't do that. So a Christian wouldn't do that. If you're, if you have a really beautiful doctrinal statement, but it doesn't include thou shalt not covet or thou shalt be benevolent, charitable, then the cause and effect, the gimmel in your life is going to produce a different effect than Christianity should be producing. See, this is the problem is that much of what we see today, many of what we see today, who say they are Christians. And Jesus, of course, warned us. You know, he said, many will come in my name, say they're Christians. But I don't know them. And you know that God doesn't know them because they're covetous. That's that's one way. There's other ways. And Paul lists them, big long lists. If you're doing this and you're doing that, then then you're covetous. Then you're then you're, you know, uh, warped, distorted in your understanding of Christ. And therefore, you don't really believe in Christ. You're not really following Christ. You're not really seeking the way of Christ. And we know this by what you do. James is big on explaining that. How do you know who believes and who doesn't believe? Well, we don't always have to know who believes and doesn't believe. But he very he makes it very clear that by what they do, that's how you know. And that's one of the interesting things about religion is religion is is what you do. It's not what you think. It's not what you say. It's what you do. And Jesus even says that. Not those who say, Lord, Lord, say they believe, say they follow Christ, but those who actually are doing what I said to do. So you would think that a doctrinal statement of the church or a Christian group would definitely focus on what Christ said to do and not do. 
But that isn't always what we see going on <laughs> in modern Christendom. We actually see them doing the opposite. So what you, what I commonly found in most of these doctrinal statements is that, you know, they said that the Bible uh, is the inerrant word of God. And I can agree with that. The Bible being the inspirational message of God to individuals who wrote it down in their language to express that inerrant spirit of God. The problem is, is language is easily distorted through sophistry. And we have a whole article on sophistry. You can look up at Preparing You and see what sophistry does and how it's used to distort the teachings of Jesus Christ. The actual doctrines of Je- That's what doctrines mean, teachings of Jesus Christ. And one of the other things that, so, that we often find in doctrinal statements is that you know, there is one God, and then they, some of them will talk about the Trinity, which is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he says those are all one. They're all in agreement. They're all the same thing. They're all the same thing, but they're different, which is kind of an abstract idea and can get very confusing. So, But the reality is is that the Bible never talks about the word Trinity, but it does talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and those are three things, so we can call them that. And we have an article up on Trinity, so that because everybody's idea of the Trinity is not the same, but whatever this threesome is, this God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, whatever that is, uh, it is what it is. It, it's not what. Everybody thinks about it, but it is actually what it is. And it's our job to figure out what it is. So when people say that you have to believe in the Trinity, well, I believe that there's the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And I believe that somewhere a hundred or so years after uh, Jesus was here, uh, somebody came up with the word Trinity. And lots of people have applied lots of ideas to that concept and some of those ideas are correct and some of those ideas are not correct. So I don't know what everybody thinks when they say that. They they describe it out. But again, you know, they talk about you have to believe in the resurrection and the salvation by grace. Absolutely. That there's nothing you can do, no works you can do where God owes you anything. You can never get to a state where God owes you. <laughs> it just doesn't doesn't work that way. So I can agree with all those things, but what I, I'm curious about is why haven't these doctrinal statements talked about love and charity, which are usually the same word in the Greek. It's just that when Jesus says it, they translate it love. When Paul says that they translated charity, which I thought I was amazed. You know, when I'm learning Greek and reading these things, I says, "Well, that's the same word that Jesus used, and you translated it love." But when Paul uses it, you translated charity. And again, let's go back. We're still on the topic of Gimel, the cause and effect of God's universe that He created as the Creator. Gimel is this cause and effect. So if you love your neighbor, we should be seeing charity towards your neighbor. We should not see 
covetous practices. We shouldn't see you trying to get stuff from your neighbor, force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. That would not be charity. That would be the antithesis of charity. So, if if you are forcing your neighbor to contribute to what you want, then that's the antithesis of love and charity. Those aren't love and charity. Love is not a feeling. That's a, you know, and and Sense and Sensibility, the book Sense and Sensibility, the question is asked, is love, you know, a feeling or is it a fancy? Well, actually, you know, I went and looked up the word fancy and, of course, we have a definition today, but the book wasn't written today. It was written a long time ago. So then I, I look up in ancient dictionaries to find out, what do they mean, fancy? And, you know, like most words, it can mean lots of different things to lots of different people. Which is why, even though the the Spirit of God is inerrant, the interpretation, the private interpretation of people is often very errant. And, And some of that is to blame on words. But that's why you can never read the Bible with your intellectual knowledge of words. I mean, you can... But you aren't guaranteed of a proper interpretation because that would, no matter what you want to call it, if you're using your mental capacity, your dictionaries, your your understanding of words to interpret the Bible, that's a private interpretation. And, and the Bible is not given to private interpretation because the Bible is written in words and words can mean all kinds of different things to different people. And of course, we've shown that you know, they'll take the same Hebrew word or the same Greek word and they'll translate it a dozen different ways. The same word. In the Greek, it's it's amazing because it's exactly the same spelling and they translate it several different ways. In Hebrew, it's even more complex because they'll say, this is the word in Hebrew. You know, chet gimel gimel, which means roof. And they say, well, this is the word. That we have there. Chet Gimel Gimel. But when you actually look at the text, it's not Chet Gimel Gimel. <laughs> There's no Chet in it. They've just completely removed the Chet. And they put a hay in there. And they also have a Vav and a Yod in there. And they say, well, yeah, it's the word Chet Gimel Gimel. But there's no Chet. And there's these other letters. What do they mean? Well, that's the amazing thing is that and I can give you thousands and thousands and thousands of examples of this in the Bible where they're adding extra letters, taking letters away, changing the position of the letters. I found words where they say it's this base three-letter word, and only one of those three letters is in the word that we actually see in the text. And there's actually five different or six different or even seven different letters there representing that word. And only one of them is the one of the original three letters in the Hebrew word. Now, I understand the difficulty in translating things. But if you think you're getting an absolutely inerrant picture of the Bible by reading it in English, no matter what version you have, you got another guess coming. Because you're going to miss it. But the Bible was never meant to be read alone with you and the tree of knowledge. You sit in the shade of the tree of knowledge and you read the Bible and you say it interprets itself. No, you're interpreting it. Which is fine. 
That's what we're expected to do is interpret it. But not with the tree of knowledge. Not in the shadow of the tree of knowledge. But in the Holy Spirit. So I give you lots of knowledge. I talk about a lot of these different words and the, and the letters in the words and the meaning and the customs at the time. And then I show you over here it says this and over here it says that. And you can make comparisons. That's all knowledge. That's all part of a mental observation. But the only way you're really going to understand the inerrant word of the Bible is that you sit down with the Holy Spirit. And what keeps you from sitting down with the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is not a feeling or a fancy. The Holy Spirit is real. It is a real spiritual thing. Which is why you find two gimmels in words that normally don't have two gimmels. Is one gimmel refers to the physical reality. And the other refers to the spiritual reality. Just like the double tov. These double letters. The double tov. Tov is the letter of faith. It has to do with faith. And the actions that faith compel, because that's what faith, the, the Greek word faith doesn't mean just what you think. It's what you're compelled. Even in modern day courts, when dealing with religious issues, they will say, well, you say you did this because of a religious belief. You know, like somebody wants a religious exemption or something. Is this really a matter of personal faith? I mean, they even have in the Constitution of Oregon that you have a right to make decisions based upon your individual convictions, your personal conviction. This is what faith is. It's a personal conviction. It's not just an idea like I think this. It's an idea that I am compelled to act according to this idea. Because it's a conviction. Belief is not just an idea in your head. It actually compels action. And the Greek word for faith, pisos, it compels action. So courts will actually, judges will ask, you know, do you actually believe this? Do you really have the faith to believe this? Romans, when questioning somebody and the person says what they believe to be true... They will torture that individual to find out if they really believe it. You know, and, and you know, we, we don't, we think, oh, you can't do that. But to the Romans, you had to be willing to withstand pain and stick to your conviction or they didn't think you really believed it. That wasn't really true. We couldn't count on it. Because you just say you believe this to be true, but... When it comes down to torture, you say, oh, no, no, I was just kidding. That's not really true. That's not what I saw. This this is what I saw. <laughs> so, so it's not a conviction. Well, this is the thing is that people put out these doctrinal statements that they believe this is true. And, the, and it may very well may be true. But if you're trying to create a doctrine that has reference to Jesus Christ, then then you're going to have to have the doctrines of Jesus Christ in that doctrinal statement. So if you looked up 
the doctrines of Jesus at preparing you or even at his holy church is basically the doctrines of his holy church are what Jesus said. What he said to do, what he said not to do. That's the doctrines of Jesus Christ. But what has happened, and we've explained this also in an article on religion, on pure religion, you can look those up at preparingyou.com, that religion is not what you think. It, religion is the pious performance of a duty to God, which includes a duty to your fellow man, because one of the duties that God imposed upon us was to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus said it. Moses said it. And of course, the message of Moses in Exodus 5 is going to include that. And actually, to understand that that is part of the doctrines of Moses as well as the doctrines of Jesus Christ because they go to great lengths in the New Testament to show that Jesus and Moses were in agreement, but the Pharisees and Jesus were not in agreement Therefore, ergo, the Pharisees and Moses were not in agreement. They, the, the reality was they studied the Hebrew under the tree of knowledge. <laughs> they studied the scripture in Hebrew and in Greek because by then you had the Septuagint, which was the Hebrew translated into Greek uh, by 70 government-paid scholars. And, and even though... The Septuagint was probably, there had to be some distortion because language distorts. Because words are not math. Words have multiple meanings. So when you're reading anything in any language, you can get a different interpretation depending upon which of those meanings of those words that you accept. And the only way you're going to know what to accept again is back to that Holy Spirit. So, to physically read and interpret the Bible is one gimmel. <laughs> but to spiritually read and interpret the Bible based upon that Holy Spirit, that's two gimmels. That's going to cause two effects. Double tov in spirit and in truth. And we see that phrase, in spirit and in truth, a number of times in the Bible. That is the double gimmel. That is going to get you the results, the, the consequences and the cause and effect that will be called a blessing. When you remove one of those aspects, see, this is really uh, significant. Now, we'll, we'll approach this the other way. If you think that you can follow a particular physical set of rules, you know, which is what Paul, when he's talking about using the Greek, he only has one word in the Greek, nomos, for law. If you think that if I do this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, follow the law, the verbal law, the word written law, if I do these things, the effect will be that I will be saved. And this is the message that Paul is constantly saying because he's dealing with Pharisees who thought that way. You know, if I... And they say, well, we're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath so uh, because they thought the Sabbath was a day. They had already removed the idea that the Sabbath was a way. It was a precept. It was a principle. Part of that culture 
that you you don't go into debt. You work first, you earn what you get, and you only get what you earn. You don't get what you have to earn tomorrow, because if you get what you have to earn tomorrow, you'll go back into the bondage of Egypt. You know, if you're uh, drinking wine before it's time, it will become bitter in your mouth. That's what they say. You can, you, you know, if you take wine, you're making wine. That's an anaerobic process where you have bacteria in in the in grape juice, and it's turning a certain bacteria is turning the wine uh, the grape juice into wine. If you expose it to oxygen, you will turn it into vinegar. And that's that's really a, a important precept that we see in nature that will also play out in real life. But we'll have to look at that when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom after another brief break. So be right back. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, this idea of cause and effect is really important to understanding how God works in the universe. And that He, you know, we we have, as a child, we will think, you know, like there's a guy up there somewhere in heaven who looks like Charlton Heston and... And he's got this big, long, flowing white beard, and that's that is the God of heaven. And he's sitting up there deciding and getting impatient, and because they're trying to explain what God is using terms that we can relate to, and we'll see that in uh, some of the. Well, we've actually looked at it a little bit. I mean, this the idea of the burning bush. Moses looks out and sees a light out on the desert, and he says, ah, burning bush, because that's something we see out here, that bushes will suddenly spontaneously combust and become uh, burning up. You'll see this light out on the desert. You know it's not headlights, because there are no headlights. You know it's not somebody walking around with a flashlight, because there are no flashlights. But you see a light out on the desert and you say, well, that's a burning bush because there's nothing out there but bushes and there's a light. But it did not consume. It didn't burn up. And so he's going out to look at this burning bush. And if you read a lot of the ancient stories in Hebrew and Hebrew texts, you realize that once they identify something as something, like a burning bush, they will keep calling it a burning bush even though they get up close to it and they know, well, that's not actually a bush that's burning. That's something else that looked like a burning bush from over here. But now that I'm here, it doesn't look like a burning bush. But it also doesn't look like anything I've ever seen before. So I'm going to continue to call it a burning bush. And, of course, we have artists today. They painted pictures of burning bushes and Moses standing right there. And this bush is all flamey and burning. And he's talking to the bush. That's not what he's seeing. That's what the artist is seeing. 
That's not what he's seen. He's seen what looked like a burning bush, but up close, it's not a burning bush. There's a voice coming out of it, and he's talking to that voice and following the instructions that he is given. And one of the instructions was to take the shoes off your feet and ground yourself. Because this is different ground than you were on when you were way off in the distance. Something, some reason or other, he had to take his shoes off and stand barefooted on the ground. Not insulated away from the ground when he's talking to whoever it is that is in this thing that looked like a burning bush from far off. But now that I'm here, I see it's not a burning bush, but I don't know what it is. So I'm going to keep calling it a burning bush. Now you can say, well, that's my interpretation. You think it actually looked like a bush on fire even when he got up close. But then you're going to have to explain to me that this burning pillar of fire that they saw at night, but in the daytime it didn't look like fire. It just looked like a pillar of smoke, a, a cloud of smoke, but it was up in the sky and was floating around in the same place, but it didn't glow. It only glowed at night because that's when it would look like it's glowing. <laughs> Because it was dark out. But he actually goes up and he talks to somebody. He turns sideways and he talks to somebody inside this cloud. This this uh, pillar of fire. But it didn't look like a pillar of fire. just glowed at night. And that's the way they described it in the Hebrew text. But they do that all the time. That's the way they do it with their words. The Levites really weren't getting the kidneys. They weren't eating kidney at morning, noon, and nighttime too. They were getting the reins of control. And that's the way their language is. It's full of metaphors, full of allegories, full of symbols. And ours is too, but we're used to ours, so we don't have any problem with it. But we're, evidently, some people have a problem when they're reading the ancient Hebrew. So, this cause and effect universe that we see in uh, the Gimel, which says that if you're charitable, blessings will come. If you're covetous, curses will come. They're both simply the cause and effect of what's, what's coming your way. And it's coming your way because of the choices you make. I started to say, you know, like with nakedness. The Levites were not to go up by steps. And one of the reasons was is that you would see their nakedness. In other words, you'd look up their robe, evidently, and see that they were naked underneath their robe. And if they went up by steps, you would see that. But that's all just metaphors. What what they're saying is the same thing that Jesus said when he says, you are not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. Go higher up steps, hierarchies, where you rule over one another. That's, That's all he's saying, is that you're not to be that way with one another. And so, what was the remedy in the Old Testament for the Levites? Uh, They had to have a covering made for them. Breaches. 
the people were to sew the breeches of the Levites. Again, this is a metaphor. They didn't have to make their underwear. The people didn't have to make underwear to wear under the garments of the robes of the Israelites, uh, Levites. This is a metaphor saying that they received their covering from the people. Because they had no authority. They couldn't force the contributions of the people because this was an intentional community. It was a voluntary community. It was a community that operated according to the perfect law of liberty that, yeah, you had to tithe. You had to donate a portion of what you produced every year to a Levite, but you got to choose which Levite. You got to choose what, you know, they tell you that you should, you know, of your sorting sheep, you should just say, well, every tenth sheep. But the discretion was at yours. The Levites could not force the offering. They did not have authority. They were naked. They were given authority because you made the choice. They were a part of a system in Israel for the redistribution of wealth. But the power of choosing what was going to be redistributed of your wealth was in your hands. You had to choose who you were going to give it to, when you were going to give it, how much you were going to give, etc., Because by giving you the power of choice, you entered into the realm of the gimel and the double gimel. Now, you could choose to give out of love. See, charity is giving out of love. And and sometimes, like I've explained, is that charity is not giving at all. Actually, I just recently heard a story about somebody who is living in their car out in the desert. And uh, they probably get a government check, but they don't have a place to live. And they went to a church and they insisted that the church buy them a an RV, a, a trailer of some sort that they could live in. And so they began to ask the individual questions about, you know, what are their resources? What what do they have? You know how you know they they know they're living in their car, but they want to know well why are you living in your car? How can we help you? How can we make it so that you don't end up living in your car again? You know we give you a trailer, you could totally trash it. They're living in their car, I think, with three dogs. This is a woman living in her car because her boyfriend's in jail. <laughs> so, you know you start putting the pieces together. And so they're trying to figure out how they can actually help this woman strengthen her character, strengthen her life, improve her life. And she is not being cooperative. When they ask her, well, how much resources do you have? She won't tell. She won't explain. She doesn't think she has to. Well, they don't have to give to her either. Now, it's a modern church. And they're struggling and trying to figure out these things. And, you know, they actually went to the government and said, well, what can the government do? Well, well, we don't really have those kinds of services, at least not to any great extent, like you would in downtown Portland. Because we're very sparse and not very many people out here. And it's a great deal of distance between everybody. But, uh, no, 
they and they were they admitted it and they admitted because they happened to talk to somebody in government I know who said so you're admitting that it's wrong just to give to this person because it will weaken them and you know that you're not to weaken the poor you're to strengthen the poor and you know that that would be immoral so now you're coming to me the government and asking me to do what is immoral because you don't want to do what is immoral <laughs> you want me to weaken the poor and yeah they they could kind of see it and, and i don't i wasn't privy to the specific conversation but they got around to that idea that just to give to the poor weakens them and like i said at the beginning of the show i've strengthened the page that we have on lbj you can look that up at preparing you lbj was destroying the black community, making it subservient, making it subject, making it dependent upon the Democratic Party by its war, by his war on poverty. And he knew it. And he expressed it out loud to people that this is what he was going to do. This is the tactic of Nimrod. This is the tactic of Cain. This is the tactic of this Pharaoh, making the people dependent. Making the people dependent upon the government for its welfare. And they shouldn't do that. They sh- that. That is going to destroy. It's what I call cutting the throat of the poor with a dull knife. And of course, you can look up an article on knife at Preparing You. You can look up an article on the dainties of rulers. Just look up the word dainties. And explains to you what it, the Bible is telling you. That if you sit and eat with a ruler and you be a man of appetite, put a knife to your throat because he deserves you deceitful meats. The dainties he gives you are deceitful. Paul says they're a snare. And so now we're in Egypt and something's going to happen. So we're going to get right to it and, and read this to find out what it says in Exodus 5. So in Exodus 5, we can, we can start right off with this uh, verse 1. And afterwards, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. A feast unto me in the wilderness. And actually, there's extra letters added to the word that we see there for feast. We'll get to that later. The Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord. Neither will I let Israel go. Now, he uses the word Lord there, Yahweh. Yadavai, the I am. I am that I am. They don't put it in the King James Bible. They just put uh, L-O-R-D, all caps. And and he says, I'm not going to do it. I don't know this guy, this Lord you're talking about, this Yahweh. And of course, we we know he doesn't know him by what he does, by his actions, which are going to become even more evident. And the verses to come. And they said, 
The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days journey in the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord, Yahweh, our God, lest ye fall upon us, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. And the king of Egypt, which is the Pharaoh, said unto them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their works get ye unto your burdens? The Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens? Now he doesn't want that. And so in verse 6 he says, And the Pharaoh commanded the same day, The taskmasters, which we talked about before. We should take a look at that word, taskmasters. I'll I'll do that later. Of the people and their officers saying. Now, the reason I say look at that word, taskmasters, is it's not always the same word in the Hebrew. But it's translated. There's, There's more than one word translated taskmasters. But again, we'll look at that later. But he's saying the very same day that Moses and Aaron come and say that, you know, let my people go that they may do this feast three days hence from here so that they can worship God. Now, we've used quite a few words here, like worship. What What does the worship, you know, mean? In, in the text, we actually say, and sacrifice unto the Lord, lest he fall uh, he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. That can conjure up all kinds of ideas. And we say sacrifice because worship usually always requires sacrifice. Even today. Although most people won't tell you that. They say worship is just praising God. But if you're just praising God, that's just saying you worship God with your lips. And Jesus said, Not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do it the will of the Father. In order to do the will of the Father, you have to sacrifice. Now, God doesn't, God, God doesn't need your money. He, He doesn't need, need your money at all. He doesn't need your sacrifice, uh, you know, like your sheep or your, you know, oils or any, He doesn't need any of that stuff. But remember, religion is the pious performance of a duty to God and your fellow man. And God does want you to love your fellow man. And the word love your fellow man there is the word charity. And charity requires sacrifice because it's the gimel, it's the rich man, the guy who has more, running after the guy who has less less to give him something. But we know from the story of Sodom that what he gives that man must strengthen him, not make him weaker. And neither the private individual should give to the people to make them weaker, nor should the governments of the world like LBJ and FDR give to the people that make them weaker. It is well understood by most economists that FDR's attempt to give to the poor and to the needy and to help people out prolonged the recession. It made it worse. But even more than that, it actually has weakened the people more and more and more so that they cannot throw off the tyrant. Because they are scattered. Which you see in Venezuela when the people are trying to fight against uh, Maduro. 
and they're they're defeated every time by the professional army of Maduro, who is confiscating all the oil revenues. See, they nationalize the oil companies, then they try to create this socialist state, but that wasn't enough. And so then they started taking away businesses from private owners and they descended into chaos because they went the way of socialism. It's always destructive. You know, and including democratic socialism, which we have an article on democratic socialism, which I also beefed up this week. (laughs) But back to when we're seeing in this, the very same day, Pharaoh talks to the taskmasters. Ye shall no more give the people straw to make bricks. As heretofore, let them go and gather the straw for themselves. Now you need you need clay, you need some sand, and, and a mixture of the two to make ceramic bricks. To, to heat up those bricks and turn them into bricks where, as a building material. And you can turn them into all kinds of different bricks based on the amount of heat that you produce in firing those bricks. But first you have to make the bricks. You have to... Uh, we have a picture now I just added this morning on that page, which is the first picture you see at the beginning of Exodus that I have there, which is a, you know kind of a sketch of people making bricks. And what you need to make bricks is to gather the sand and the silt and the clay from the Nile River, which floods every year. And so there's new clay and sand deposited every year and they're dredging it out and they're uh, stomping uh, straw into it so that they can fire the bricks. And they're not just making bricks. They're making other things as well. And they know how to make these other things. And one of the things they know how to do is to make water filters. Because you make water filters out of the same uh, clay and sand. And then you add something else. But you don't really add... Well, you can add straw, but you would have to chop the straw up. What they often add today in order to make the water filter is they they use the chaff. You know, if you if it's wheat straw, you've grown wheat, and you have all the straw. Well, normally you take the straw and you would mix into the bricks, but you can knock off the chaff because you've already taken out the grain. So you can knock off the chaff and mix that into clay to make a water filter. And we, I think we actually have a page that explains how to do that. And that was going to be essential to saving the lives of thousands upon thousands of people when the plagues came. And the guys who knew how to do that and how to fire that was the Israelites. So now what's going to take place? Immediately, more burden is put on the people. You shall no more give the people straw to make the bricks. So they're not going to have straw to stomp into the clay and then dry the clay to prepare the bricks to be fired. But he goes on to say in verse 8, And the tally of the bricks which they did make heretofore, ye shall lay upon them. Ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore, 
they cry saying, let us go and sacrifice to our God. They don't want them to go and do this. So they're going to make more burdens on them for even asking. Let their more work be laid upon the men that they may labor therein and let them not regard vain words. These vain words are going out and sacrificing to this God he does not know. And the taskmasters of the people went out and the officers, these are two different things, and they spake to the people saying, Thus saith the Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go ye, get you straw where you can find it. Yet not aught of your work shall be diminished. You still got to make the same number of bricks. But now you have to go and find straw to make it with because I'm not going to give you any. Where's all the straw coming from? One of the things that they grow in Egypt was grain because grain was money. We talked about that earlier. That's what was in the bank. They deposited grain in the bank. It's what they used in foreign trade because they could ship this grain all over the Mediterranean and people would pay good trade goods that you could bring back to Egypt because that they had this regular crop of grain because they didn't depend upon the weather so much. They depended upon the flooding of the Nile and they had all these aqueduct systems so they could grow all this grain. And so that produced a lot of straw. And they would take that straw to the to uh, the people of Goshen who were there where they were collecting the mud and the sand to make these bricks. And they would probably bring in the straw with wagons and carts and take out the finished bricks the other way. And what are they using to create the heat to make the bricks? Well, first they, they're drying them, but then that's just clay and straw. They have to fire them to really turn them into a valuable brick. And the hotter the fire, the more valuable the brick. And you can only get up to about 800 degrees if you use dung like cattle dung, to fire the bricks. And you need higher temperatures if you're going to make really good bricks. But they could make a, a reasonable brick with the lower temperatures. But anyway, this is part of the process. The point is is that they have this tremendous amount of extra work they're being put on them. And the taskmaster hasted them, saying, Fulfill your works, your daily tasks, as when there was straw given you. So, but, now I skip verse 12, because this is really a very important verse. So we're going to go back there. Because they're told to go ye and get the straw yourself. You have to go get it where you find it. So now in verse 12 they say, So the people who scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. So they're going out to, to find stubble. They have to go everywhere. They're traveling all over. All the people of Egypt are now being introduced to these hardworking, industrious Israelites who are going out and trying to obtain straw for them. So what they're actually doing by scattering them out over all of Egypt is they're creating contacts with all of Egypt. This is going to be very important when the plagues come. God knows that's going to be very important. But by the time we get to the end of this 
chapter, we're going to realize Moses don't get it. Moses did not understand, and he's admitting it because he's writing this. He didn't get it. He didn't understand why this is all taking place. And by the time we get to chapter 6, we're going to have a better idea. Or we may have a better idea. We may be able to get into it deep enough that we have a better idea of what is going on. And why God is doing the things that he is doing. But he's he's actually creating an Israelite network all over Egypt. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And uh, so we're looking at this exodus and uh, this, this extra burden is put upon the Israelites that they have to go out and get the straw. But this straw sets them out amongst all the people of Egypt. And now they're going to have to go down these roads. They're going to have to go to other locations. They're going to have to go to farmers. They're going to have to go to other people that will have... They're saying, now you can get the stubble. Well... There, there was, what happens to all the straw that they, somebody used to gather up, probably the, the people that were growing the grain. See, they're growing grain. They're harvesting the grain. Uh, you know, they cut, they, they cut the grain and they har- harvest the grain and then they thrash it and they winnow it and, that's getting the chaff away from it. And they have piles and piles and piles of straw. And then they have these probably bags of grain that they now will take some of that grain and they give to the Pharaoh. They have to, because they have to give 20% of their labor to the Pharaoh as well. And, but they have all the straw. They don't have any use for the straw, but the Pharaoh used to come and get the straw and take it to the river and the guys at the river making the bricks would take the straw and mix it in with that. Now the pharaoh says, I'm not going to do it. You got to go get your own. You have to go find it amongst the stubble. Well, the stubble is just a little tiny short thing. Did they have to go out there with a scythe and cut the stubble out? No, there's piles and piles of straw at these different places where they grew the grain. And it's kind of in the way. Now maybe winds will come up and blow it away, but they don't want it all in the field because then they have to plow it. And if you plow too much straw back into the field, then they get you do, the ratio of manure and and uh, carbohydrates, uh, which is in the straw, uh, is is wrong, and it will change the fertility. So, uh, and their fertility comes when the rivers flood. And they channel the rivers out into the field to water the crops. And they have these series of dikes to hold back that water. Well, when the rivers flood, it's a dirty, silty, muddy water. And you can drink it, but it's not as nice as drinking water out of, you know, what we used to call an Indian well. You would dig a hole near a river. And the water from the river would filter into the hole because you dug the hole near the river and it was lower than the river and so the water would seep through all the sand and you could drink fresh water out of that hole that you dug in the beach. And it would be filtering out things like cholera and other 
uh, bacterias which would not be good for you because the water seeped through all that sand and that sand acted as a filter. Well, the Israelites knew how to make this water filter that was made out of clay and some sand and fired at about 800 degrees. But it also had chaff mixed in with it. And you could normally use chaff, but you could take, you know, a sharp object and chop up the the straw. So there's little fine pieces because you want these little fine pieces and then you fire it. And what happens is that little straw gets burnt up when you fire it at about 800 degrees and becomes like a charcoal. And then you make a vase out of this clay rather than a brick. And then you fire it. And then you can pour water into the vase and it will drip out the bottom and the water that drips out is filtered. It's not going to have all the bacteria and other things that would be in the water that might give you, make you ill. We call it a Berkey water filter today. Of course, they make it a much more sophisticated way. But they were making this back in the days of the Israelites in Egypt. They're still making them today out there on some of those uh, deltas and, and dikes that are out there at the headwaters of the the uh, Nile River. Because they still have problems, and now they even have more when they have lots of people. You know, people defecate too close to the river, and you can get diseases that way and everything. So where they don't have plumbing, they actually know how to make these filters still to this day. The Israelites, they dealt, because of the location in Averis, uh, near the Nile, they knew how to make things out of clay. They knew how to make these vases that could filter water. They knew how to make bricks. They knew how to do all this stuff. And now they were going out and meeting all the Egyptians because they were had to dig up their own straw. They had to find it themselves. Basically, the pharaoh was rationing straw. I'm not going to give you any straw. You don't get any straw. You don't get any of the benefits of my government. But you still have to show up with the bricks. So this is an extra burden. And we see this burden being placed on them by the pharaoh through his taskmasters and these guys they call officers. So... What is actually going on here? We see in in verse 12 that they're scattered. In verse 13, the taskmasters hasten them saying, fulfill your work. You still have to show up with your tally bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel, which Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and demanded... Wherefore have ye not fulfilled your task in the making brick both yesterday and today and heretofore? Now we can look at those words beaten and demanded. And this is what I've done now. We've already done, uh, you know, the chapters 1 through 4. And you can go back and review them. But on the pages at Preparing You, I've actually added more footnotes. More things in the side panels to try to give you a a clearer and clearer picture of what we're dealing with in these chapters. 
And so that you can relate it to the precept upon precept of God's kingdom. Because this is what the Israelites have to learn. This is why God has hardened the heart of the Pharaoh. He's, God's not caught off guard. But the people of Israel have to learn the skills, the art of liberty. Because they don't know it. They haven't been at liberty for hundreds of years. When the officers of the children of Israel came and cried unto Pharaoh, saying, Wherefore dealest thou thus with thy servants? There is no straw given unto thy servant. And they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, the servants are beaten. But the fault is in thine own people, because you won't give us the straw. But he said, Ye are idle, ye are idle. Therefore ye say, let us go do sacrifice to the Lord. Go therefore now and work, for there shall no straw be given you, yet shall ye deliver the tally of bricks. So this is a lot like what we see in Rehoboam when he was bringing the people under the same tribute Because remember, we talked about tribute in the word taskmasters in the beginning. Go back and review that if you are unfamiliar with that. That he said, my father whipped you with whips. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. This is pretty much what this Pharaoh is doing. I'm going to whip you with scorpions. I'm going to make it even harder on you. And the officers of the children of Israel did see that they were in evil case. After it was said, ye shall not diminish, diminish out aught from your bricks of your daily task. So you, you still have to give the bricks, but you're also going to have to go out and find the straw somewhere. And they met Moses and Aaron who stood in the way as they came from the Pharaoh. And they said unto them, the Lord look, Lord, meaning Yahweh, Look upon you and judge, because ye have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of the Pharaoh. Our Lord is abhorred in the eyes of the Pharaoh. And you've done this, Moses and Aaron, and in the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. This is going to kill us. Having to do this. It's going to be harder on us. Remember back. The Egyptians were becoming weaker and weaker in their system. More and more dependent upon government. But the Israelites were becoming more and more numerous. And stronger and stronger. And so they tried to put more burdens on them. And they got even stronger. And they actually wanted. This is the spirit. Of this bondage of Egypt. They wanted. The birth rate amongst the Israelites to diminish. I'll have a story in the afternoon program about the idea of leaders wanting to diminish the birth rate amongst the people that serve them. Because the people that serve them are too strong. That the spirit of liberty and freedom is too great amongst them. So they want to, they can't get that out of their hearts and their minds. Although they, they've completely ill-equipped and don't know how to be free. So that one of their ways of doing this is to diminish 
their birth rate, to cut down on the number of children they can have. And they've, they've, they've de- did this through a number of crafts of state where they made it more burdensome for the people to have children. But people still have children. And a different result is taking place. I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about Netanyahu, who was the leader of that uh, UN protectorate nation called Israel over there that's in the same general location as uh, Abraham was. And it, it's a fine nation compared to all the other nations. In some ways, it's a lot stronger, but it has nothing to do with biblical prophecy. It's just a bunch of guys who call themselves Israel, the same as there's a bunch of guys in Paris, Texas that call themselves Paris. But they don't speak French. It's not the Paris. Just the same as like why I started this program, reminding you that Abraham was a man of faith. And if you want to walk in the ways of Abraham, you have to live by faith. You can't live by force. In Ur and Haran, they force the contributions of the people. But Abraham went out and created altars of charity. They said they made them out of clay and stone, but we show in our article on sophistry, our article on altars of clay and stone, of altars, that this these altars were living altars, the same as what Jesus was creating, living stones. The language tells us this. Once you understand the meaning of the letters and the meaning of the words, which you cannot understand. I can tell you intellectually, I can explain it intellectually, we do in all these articles and audios that we have, that they were actually creating a system of charity which allowed Abraham overnight to muster an army that destroyed an army of five kings. An army that had come and taken city-state after city-state. We're taking off all kinds of treasure. He was able to defeat that army overnight. Why? Because their culture was different. They did not have the culture of the city-state, of the cities of blood. You can look that up at Preparing You. We have an article called The City of Blood, which they talk about in the in the Bible. And so, if you want to know what the city of blood is, that's what, that's what Nimrod was creating. That's what Cain was creating. That's not what Abraham was doing. He was creating altars of clay and stone. The stones were people. The clay was people. You're people. You're clay. Adam was made out of clay. But what happens is this opens up the heart of the individual so that the Holy Spirit can come in and so that when they read the Holy Text, their eyes are open, the scales are off. And they can understand the key to the perfect law of liberty, the key to freedom under God, the key to the keys of the kingdom of God. Is to li- If you will not set your neighbor free, you will not be free. Cause and effect. So, he's, he's making the people go back and now the people are blaming this on Moses and Aaron that they have brought this about, about uh, by what they've done and they, instead of getting all kinds of praise of our Savior, they're getting, they're getting called out. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Lord, wherefore hast thou so evil entreated this people? Why is it that thou hast sent me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in thy name, he hath done evil to his people. Neither hast thou delivered thy people at all. Well, that's where we're going to get into chapter 6. We don't have time to get into chapter 6 very far. Because chapter 6 actually starts off and you're thinking like, What is God talking about? The Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go. And with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. They're going to be driven out. The Israelites are not the called out. They're the driven out. When they later talk about the church in the wilderness in the New Testament, they're not talking about the Israelites. They're talking about the Levites. And generally speaking, they're talking about the Levites. Not the Levites that most of the Levites at the time of Jesus Christ, because they were all in apostasy. I, I, they're not all in apostasy, but a large number of them were in apostasy. They they were doing all the... They had their golden calf. They didn't look like a golden calf, but they had their central bank, and that's what the golden calf was. And and by going that way, the cause and effect would be that they would go more back into the bondage of Egypt. They would return to the bondage of Egypt. So there were certain precepts and we will go over them and have gone over them from time to time and touch upon these things. I can't give you all these things all at once. And God doesn't do it either in the Bible. He trickles it out. He did, Moses didn't understand what they were about to do. But all the things that that had gone on before Moses even was born was preparing for this moment. The fact that they knew how to filter water the fact that they now were developing a network all across Egypt and getting to know people outside of their own community. That was a lot of trouble. They were kind of a close-knit, tight community. We have very little knowledge from the Bible what they believed and what they thought. This was just one family originally. It was one family and their servants, and there were probably a lot of people. I mean, they say there was like 70 people coming to Egypt which is an interesting number in itself because Sanhedrin is 70 people too. There are patterns in God's kingdom. But the keys to the kingdom is that they were going to have to start learning to care about one another, help one another, work diligently with one another. And they were going to have to create a network with the people of Egypt. They were going to have to go out and communicate with the people of Egypt. In order to learn the skills of liberty under God. Because that's a skill. That's an art. And so right now, out there in the world, there's all kinds of people that are are, are learning different things. Well, come this May, we're evidently going to have here, somebody else is going to have to put it together, but I'll probably help them. We're going to have a gathering here uh, that is similar to... Uh, actually, some of the people that are going to help help with it are the people who put on rabbit stick in Idaho. Rabbit stick is world famous. People come from all over the world to go to rabbit stick and learn what you might call primitive skills, arts, and skills uh, of 
how to do certain things, you know, homesteading skills, that, that sort of thing, but all kinds of skills. And there is no greater skill than having to learn the ways of the kingdom of God. The keys to dominion under God. The keys to liberty under God. See, in God's kingdom, an intentional community is based on faith, hope, and charity. It's based on free will offerings. Free assemblies. You have to gather yourselves together. Now, they certain numerical patterns we see, like usually it's five families. Not, excuse me, ten families get together. Ten families get together and form a free assembly. And they connect with other families, create that network. That's what's going to be taking place in order to meet this extra burden. There are extra burdens coming upon us. There are also plagues coming upon us. There's also a decline of birth rate coming upon us. And for a variety of reasons. Somebody sent me some clips from a TV show, famous TV show. And, uh, you know, it was, it was put together in kind of a collage from that show. It's probably an hour-long show. It might even been two two shows. But anyway, it's an hour-long show. And they just clipped together certain lines from the movies by the actors and actresses who are famous. And uh, it was a real popular series for a while. I don't even think it's on the air anymore. I haven't seen it. I've only seen a few episodes back when it was on. But this is from one particular episode. And I tried to share it on a private messenger group to our family group. We have a family group where we send stuff to and then everybody in the family uh, gets, you know, whatever we share. And so everybody knows what's going on. And it's just a private family. And messenger immediately censored it, said it was abusive. It's just clips from a TV show that's aired that you can probably see the whole thing. But it was abusive, and they wouldn't let me send it instantly. They 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 cancel it. So I tried to send it the other day on Twitter just to see if it would go out. And it was it, it won't go out. <laughs> it won't go out on Twitter. Uh, I I tried to send it on Telegram, and, but the guy I sent it to, he hasn't responded. So I don't know if he even got it. So maybe it looks like it was sent, but it didn't. Maybe it even got filtered on Telegram. It's just clips from a TV show. But uh, what it talks about, well, you'll have to join the network to find out. I will probably share it with the ministers. I hope they get it. And they can probably share it with you. But you have to sit down because it is very clear. The Elon Musk or no Elon Musk, there's still going to be censorship. And when whatever happens goes to the next stage, next series of things, it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. I mean, we're getting a glimpse that it's been taking place. we got evidence that it, they're denying, they're putting on the media that it's not actually taking place. This is just conspiracy theory. They have the, what is it, the Twitter files are being dumped and they're showing, you know, they actually were writing this. They actually had 80 guys trying to filter out everything so that you can see it. They spent millions and millions of dollars so that you would not hear the truth about the laptop. I'm trying to get you the truth about the Bible. (laughs) What the Bible is trying to tell you. It's trying to tell you how to be free souls under God. But people will write doctrinal statements that don't tell you any of the keys of the kingdom. 
They don't mention love. They don't mention charity. They don't mention forgiveness. They don't mention the weightier matters that Christ said were the weightier matters. In their doctrinal statements about Jesus Christ. Instead, they mention all kinds of things that Jesus never said anything or addressed even. Words he never used. Now, I, I don't fault them because we told that there'd be this strong deception. But as they begin to see what they've been missing, what has been taken from them, what has been hidden away from them, they're going to have to make a choice as to think differently. Will they think differently? Will they see the gospel of the kingdom? The whole truth? Because if you don't have the whole truth, what you got is a lie. That is the definition of a lie. Now, sometimes a lie is they include information that's not true. But most lies are just leaving out information that's true, that's a part of the truth. They just leave it out. It's lie by omission. We're filling in those gaps. And what the Israelites are now facing as they get through Exodus 5 is they're going to face the rest of the story. And, and Moses doesn't even know. Moses is moved by faith, like Abraham moved by faith. He did not understand fully the consequences of creating these altars of charity and teaching the ways of charity to all these other people round about them. He did not understand what that was going to mean. We should understand today, because that history has taken place, but history repeats itself. But, we're out of time, so until then, till we meet again, peace on your house, and may God be with you. God bless. See you on the network. Join the network at Preparing You. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.